FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. This is Saswat, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined tonight by my pal, Mark Matsky. Greetings from Southeast Ohio. Um, you threw me off because there was no special no addendum. I know. Yeah. There's nothing. Um, Where nothing happens, Bigfoot-wise. It's actually nothing happens in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, we are back. I can't remember when we recorded last. I'm sure it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. A lot's happened. Um, I'm sorry to anyone who is complaining on message boards about the fact that I talk about Minerva Monster on my show too much. But That's I happening? did want to talk about There's, there's yeah. message oh, yeah. boards oh, yeah. complaints? Really? It's, it's out there. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, I've also seen myself called a sellout, which is ironic, <laughs> given the Megan Fox incident. But... Um, <laughs> Let's talk about the um, Minerva Monster Day that happened in um, Minerva last weekend, right? Or was the, no, it was the weekend before. Yes. July 6th. July 6th. Ten days ago. June 6th. June. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Time hopping. We are it's in dimensional. the dimensional. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, so we had Minerva Monster Day in Minerva. Um, kind of a cool... Um, in a lot of ways, it was everything I dreamed about um, as far as a an awesome, fun, uh, local Bigfoot uh, kind of mascot event. And You know what's really funny, Mark, is I wrote a blog post on Sasswat um, possibly, before, possibly before we were even doing Sasswat. I can't remember, but um, I talked about the... Um, the, the monetization of your local Bigfoot. Like if you have a town monster, I think towns should embrace that and turn it into a thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I really think I talked about Minerva in that blog post. I'd have to go back and yeah. look, but I, I think I did talk about Minerva and it's so weird to now be like, I, I, in a, I mean, I don't think the chamber of commerce would deny it. I, headed up the entire event like i put together our vendor list and i mean alan uh helped a lot as well but it was mostly dealing with with you know the the city itself and getting food vendors in and all that kind of stuff and figuring out the scheduling of the events and we had a couple of meetings where um the crew and i would sit around and you know kind of decide on what the show times would be but we it was a crazy event. We we had around 1,200 people is what the estimates are, but it could have been a little higher than that or a little lower than that. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Someone said 1,500, um, but I went to like a Chamber of Commerce breakfast last week out in Minerva to speak, and we were bandying about 1,200 as yeah. being the kind of the number that was there. So we, we filled up. I, I don't think it got too much more full in terms of the theater than that first showing at 1,230, which was... Um, crazy. It was lined down the street and around the block, and uh, people were fighting to get into the theater, <laughs> and it was completely packed out. Um, 
the 130 showing was a showing we had added the a few days before because we got a, a few days out from the event and I was like okay we are obviously going to fill the theater for three showings so we added another showing and that that showing was also almost full I think it was probably 90 95% full yeah I, th- uh, I think you needed that extra yeah you really did uh, definitely because I think we ended up I mean three o'clock was full or close to capacity. 5.30 was actually the least busy, which is funny because we closed it down, the reserve seat, seating on that, because we had so many reserved seats. We had like 160-some reserved seats, and there's only 180, 180 seats in that theater. But we came close to filling every single showing. So the the estimates for showing would be like 700, maybe. Mm-hmm. Around 700 people saw the movie. Um so uh, I didn't get to spend a ton of time outside of the theater. In fact, I think I actually hung out with you during one of my few yeah. times outside of the theater. You and I walked around that back alley and kind of sat outside of the theater right. uh, in between showings. Because what, to for those who couldn't be there, basically there was... The Roxy's a very old theater. It's not very big. Behind it, the movie, th- the screen actually sits on a stage, and behind the stage is, you know, a, a kind of a, I don't know what you would call that area, but where people control the lighting and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And then there's the an exit that runs into an alleyway out back. And what I would do is I would turn the movie on, you know, I'd introduce the movie, get the movie running, and then... Um, Alan was in there for almost every one of those introductions, but Alan and I would get the movie running and then I would sneak out the back exit. Alan would go up the front and then I actually would run around (laughs) the exterior of the, it's just like running down a block basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were a few times that day where I found myself sprinting from one place to another because I had to get, you know, from one event to we were doing a screening. So I had to get over to a presentation that happened a couple times. And then there was also like getting vendors situated and everything. So um, all in all, it was a really cool event. I think um, you and Andy recapped it really well on Monsterland, Ohio. What's your URL? It's uh, Monsterland, Ohio Radio at Podomatic.com. And we also throw everything up on the blog site, which is a little easier. That's MonsterlandOhio.blogspot.com. But that was a lot yeah, of fun to run around getting audio that day and and just hopefully capturing sort of the general ambiance of the outdoor sort of small town feel of the whole event, which was really, you know, unique and really cool. It really it w- was a very awesome event and it was centered around this one <laughs> creature it wasn't like i don't think i would call it a bigfoot festival i saw some people do that i I really don't feel like it was a bigfoot festival i felt like it was a minerva centric monster festival like it was and i tried to tried to bring in some vendors that were you know very centered toward that obviously matt harris brought in uh some of his artwork from the movie and um brian borgman had some of those freaking awesome board games yeah um just really cool. There was a chainsaw guy, a guy there who was, who did like chainsaw carvings of the Minerva monster, which was really cool. Um, and then my dad was there selling pens. From everything I heard, my dad was like one of the mo- most like successful vendors yeah. of the day. I guess the pens were um, flying off the table. I can vouch for that. Yeah, it's a eyewitness. So, what was the feedback like when you talked to the uh, Minerva chamber, chamber afterwards? Yeah, yeah, behind the scenes. We'll, We'll do that. Um, 
I had to speak at the Chamber of Commerce breakfast on Wednesday after the uh, the presentation, and the feedback was unanimously great. Like, um, they want to have us back. They want to mm-hmm. make it an annual event, which is funny to me because what I said to them, and this is not good business, folks, but <laughs> what, I, what I said to them is, you know, y- you guys don't need us. It's not like we own the, the Minerva Monster IP. Um, but I did say, if you don't have us, what you're going to be – uh, presenting to people is just a, another Bigfoot festival because I know that's what it'll be. They'll they'll bring in some of the Bigfoot vendors and they'll have you know Jeff Meldrum will come and blab or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and no bitterness. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they'll they'll have these guys talk, you know, and it, it'll be in the paper a little bit, and that'll be it. But if uh, yeah, if I have my way, I have some ideas. I presented to them. They they seem pretty excited about some of the ideas I had, and I th- I think right now they do want to have us kind of uh, run the event again next year. So we might we might be making it an annual thing. And I've got some ideas for what I want to do. Um, I just I I love the idea of integrating like local history into the monster subject, and because they're they're not they shouldn't be separated anyway you know this was a major historical event minerva um so we we tried to do a lot with the historical society they were set up you know selling cookies and stuff and and i guess um they had six volunteers sign up for the historical society which is fantastic because the historical society in minerva is very um they they've told me themselves i don't think they'd be offended if i said this but they're they're elderly it's all older people and it's getting older every year and they need people to help run the historical society. And it was one of the things we wanted to do, you know, to help them out. So they came down, set up tables and stuff, and they ended up, I guess, picking up six volunteers. So that's awesome. And they made some money selling cookies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think all in all... really well-developed historical society right there. I, I did is. walk in there and look around, and yeah, they were very happy, <laughs> I think, to have somebody come in and sign the book and actually look what was in there but not i don't think every small town has what minerva has in terms of a a nice location like that and a collection that's pretty amazing too yeah and they will if it if i have any saying it they will have some sort of minerva monster uh display eventually we had some blow-ups done like poster blow-ups and uh we're gonna try to get those in there we're donating them eventually after we're done with like all the library presentations and stuff um which brings me to um, the big news, which is that the Minerva Monster will be screening at the Canton Palace Theater, which is a 1,500-seat uh, classic movie house um, in downtown Canton. They do kind of a cool thing on Thursday nights. They do an art film showing, and, and it, I guess we just timed it out, right? So they are showing Minerva Monster as their art film. So um, if you're in Ohio, you can come to that. We also have a showing at the... It's called the Nightlight Cinema. It's in downtown Akron. It's a tiny little art house theater, uh, 52 seats. So if you would rather come see it at a much smaller, more intimate venue, we're going to show it there too. Um, and we have some other stuff lined up for the summer. Big. I put together our Google calendar last night, and it was insane. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it, for especially July and September. Um, August is a little more... Uh, open right now, but I'm actually trying to fill that up too. So there's screenings of the movie that are taking place throughout the state at libraries too. We've got Brunswick, Carrollton. We're going to be in New York on July 12th. We're going to be um, 
four or five, I think, library presentations on top of those. So we're kind of just gearing up with the film stuff. So if you're in Ohio and you haven't had a chance to see the movie, uh, or in if you're in New York, we're going to be in Wells, New York, showing the film. So come over. That's July 12th at the Wells Community Hall, I think it's called. But um, yeah, that's enough about Minerva Monster. I'm sure there's people firing up their 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 complaints right now on the forums. So uh, we got a message on uh, Facebook, and I never know how to approach uh, Facebook messages if I should read people's names or not. Because sometimes you never know. Some people might want to remain anonymous, but I'll just. This was from a guy named Drew, and this was after listening to the uh, NAWAC episode. He's he said, I've been listening to your podcast for maybe six months and really enjoy the content and the way it is presented when it comes to Bigfoot, the Wood Ape, Sasquatch, or whatever you want to call the unidentified bipedal primate living in the woods of North America. Your show seems to offer the most rational and thoughtful discussion out there. He goes a little bit into his background with the subject and what he believes um, you know, the Bigfoot is. And, and it's very detailed. Like This is a very detailed letter, but he, he does come up with some... Some kind of cool questions at the end. So, uh, this will be the biggest anthropolo- anthropological discovery ever. What do researchers do when it is found? I know the NAWAC has a plan, but they have yet to really discuss it. What sort of things do you guys think will happen when it's announced? Who would you call? A university? A Bigfoot group? Would you hide it? Bury it for later? Recovery? Take a sample like a finger or toe? What would the response of the world be to this discovery? Panic? A mass of trophy hunters headed to the American Northwest. A no-kill bill passed through Congress. These are all great discussion topics with all with all with many opinions. That day will come. The work of NAWAC almost guarantees this. The hunt for Bigfoot will end, and the understanding of Bigfoot will begin. Do they have culture, communication, a spoken language? What kind of communities do they live in? How large? How many miles do they cover? Migrate? Where do they migrate from? How closely related to some Homo sapiens? So many questions. If you guys are ever in need of a topic, what about what happens the day after a confirmed non-human upright walking primate is found in North America, alive or dead? Day one. The community of what I call scientifically minded Sasquatch thinkers is quite small, so I'm happy I was able to find your podcast. Continued success. And it's a great, uh, great, great letter. What happens after Bigfoot if it exists, is discovered. Mark Matsky, answer the question. <laughs> right. Well, here is my 85-point diatribe on what happens after it's discovered. I don't know. I think, you know, first thing that would happen is that some type of academic institution would almost certainly have to get involved on some level, because everybody knows at this point that what matters most in terms of verifying a discovery would be, um, you know, an academic institution doing a study of some type and it being peer-reviewed and published in a reputable journal. You know, as much as I think we there'd be a temptation to uh, assume that it would be on the nightly news and all that good stuff. I'm not sure how loudly it would really be trumpeted at first because the whole shape of the, you know, the alleged discoveries that have happened so far have really tried to err on the side of caution, uh, rightly so. 
um, not to jump to conclusions about what's been found. I mean, I, I'm assuming that the, te- the tone of the letter suggests that, you know, somebody either stumbles across a dead, intact Bigfoot corpse or one is obtained. Um, so it's not just like an arm or a finger that's being sent in, but we're talking about the whole, the whole thing. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, that that's where I would start is that there'd have to be some connection uh, to an institution of some sort that would be able to verify this in a scientific manner, because otherwise it just would become the circus that we are accustomed to. Yeah, I just I, I guess I wonder what life would be like after you're aware that a giant um, bipedal primate is roaming around in the woods right near where you're hiking. Like, if I knew for a fact that there is a Bigfoot, I don't know that I would be comfortable. I, I go on hikes, like late afternoon hikes sometimes in CVMP during summer that stretch after dark. And, you know, like Adrian and I go hike and we go camp and all that stuff. I don't think I'd be comfortable with a lot of that hmm. stuff anymore. Um, but maybe I'd be fine. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not necessarily convinced either that they're, that even if they are ex- out there, that they'd be out to kill me. Sure. Um, obviously, they're they're very interested in staying, you know, yeah. absent I mean, from human, from, from humanity. But, but if... If I knew for a fact they were out there, you're never going to look at the woods the same way again. No, that's absolutely right. And I think that's what's led to some of the uh, conspiracy talk about, you know, if that did come to light, what would people think? And would they continue to go to national parks and state parks? And so, you know, as the story goes, the the governmental entities know this and they don't want you to know it because you'll stop coming uh, to their parks. And... Uh, to that, though, I would also ask the question, well, people hike and camp in places where there's bear, um, where there's mountain lions, um, you know, apex predators, if you will. Um, they're already doing that. So if this, you know, by most accounts, relatively docile creature is walking around, I don't know. I, th- I think it would be still I would think it would be cool to try and go see one if possible. I might, I don't know, I'd be more afraid of, like, seeing a grizzly in person, really, than something that looks a little bit more like you and me, perhaps. I don't know. Does it, does it, what does it do to the Bigfoot community? Like, the day after we find out that they are a flesh and blood animal that has remained elusive, um... And and they're running around, you know, they're not teleporting and, and mind-speaking and going into the other dimension. What does that do to those? I mean, those people just walk away, right? I think they do. I think they go find unicorns or fairies or pixies or something. To <laughs> I think there is a mass I told you so moment that would be there. I mean, I and uh, for some, I think it would just change the trajectory of what they're already doing because i can't see somebody who's invested a lot of their life in this search just sort of stopping at a point where it says okay it's been proven these exist now we're gonna you know go in an entirely different direction i think what you might see would be like a, a bigfoot safari type thing you know where those folks would just continue to lead people 
into locations where the likelihood of spotting a Bigfoot would be greater than others. And uh, they would, you know, feel pretty good about the fact that they were ahead of the curve in acknowledging the animal's existence. But I think a lot of the people that I've met would probably stick with it um, and still be very much a Bigfoot fan, except now with the added uh, benefit of it being real uh, by scientific yeah. standards. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even I would probably be more prone to go out looking in the woods for, for Bigfoot now. I mean, go Bigfooting. I would mm-hmm. probably actually be much more likely to go Bigfooting. Um, and it's it's interesting, too, to think of from a historical aspect what that does to a lot of um, Bigfoot stories. You know, like, so where do you, what, what happens then? Do we reevaluate? We find out they're really, because regardless of what people say, I do approach things pretty skeptically. I don't take a lot of the stories seriously. Um, not that I don't take them seriously. I just, I guess I, I, in a lot of ways, I, I count off many of the things I hear, um, which probably isn't great, but it's just something that has happened over the last couple of years where I've grown more and more skeptical. So do I, do I reevaluate the Ape Canyon incident? Do I reevaluate the Albert Ostman encounter? Cause personally, I think the Ostman encounter, the, my belief is that it's not real. Um, but if I know for a fact there is a you know an ape running around out there, do I then have to reevaluate that entirely? You know, is this okay? Well, maybe there is something to this. Is there parts of that story that are falsified, or are these things really running around weaving rugs and baskets? Hmm. Yeah, I think you do have to go back and reread everything. I maybe the obvious parallel would be the discovery of the mountain gorilla because there were all kinds of, you know, uh, speculation about what this creature was and even um, skeptical of its existence, but then it was inconveniently found. And then I think at that time people had to go back and, you know, now they they took the native stories in a whole different fashion. Um, There would be a lot of that, I think. It doesn't mean, it doesn't obviously validate every story ever told about Bigfoot either. Um, But it it gives you a basis for, you know, why did somebody see what they saw and describe it the way that they did. Um, Mm. Which is really, that's sort of an undercurrent in some of the literature that's out there that we'll be talking about tonight. Is this, this push to try and figure out you know, people are seeing something or they think they're seeing something and, and why. Yeah. Yeah. We could spend some serious time talking about this. So we might have to make it an yeah. entire episode at some point. But tonight's topic, 22 minutes into the show, and I'm finally getting around to this. <laughs> tonight's topic is uh, skepticism and kind of the um, state of skepticism today, I think. Is that is that appropriate? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Okay. And uh, kind of a attendant wave of literature that goes along with that skepticism um just over the last 10 15 years there's been a a rise in what you might call a anthropological or sociological look at bigfoot written by um you know scholars in their field uh degree holding professors and assistant professors 
who are approaching the Bigfoot topic um, somewhat from the standpoint of is the creature real or not, but they are just as interested in the human element. You know, why why do we care that there, that this thing might exist? And in a sense, I mean, trying to dig at if it, is this really folklore? Is this really a mythology that we as human beings have to have? And I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions, obviously, but that's sort of the general flavor. I mean, along with their skepticism, and some I wouldn't even really describe as skeptics. I would describe them as sort of Bigfoot agnostics, if you will. Uh, they don't really have a take, and they're not really interested in answering that question. They're more interested in, you know, why do people continue to have these experiences when the evidence of these creatures uh, seems to be relatively poor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and would you count the book that I love that, that what is it, the dark, um, the one by, uh, oh my God, I'm totally blanking, the the hike, it's about the guy oh, yeah. that hikes. Yep, uh, <laughs> Robert Piles, uh, where Bigfoot It almost walks. falls in that category. It does. In some ways, I would say it's the precursor to the later wave of writings and one reason I say that is because he's quoted in almost all the other books as sort of the originator of some of these ideas of Bigfoot as myth, uh, Bigfoot as sort of a uh, archetype of the forest guardian, or in in uh, Pyle's own words, you know, he uh, Bigfoot as an ambassador for a truly green spirituality, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting turn of phrase. Because he's definitely of that opinion that what's more important is the possibility of Bigfoot than the actual flesh and blood creature. And that that's what gives mm-hmm. it value for us today is that he's sort of an ecological symbol almost. Yeah, yeah. And um, that book is, is really uh, fascinating too because he takes such a – it's an interesting way to approach the topic, which is – it's almost like reading a walk in the woods or something. I mean, it's this guy just going on kind of a jaunt around Bigfoot country, and the book does not necessarily um, even... I, I don't even feel like at some point it just completely leaves the Bigfoot topic and becomes more about this guy exploring the world and seeing how things change and the the ecological um, and and kind of the, the effects that things like... Um, what is it like four wheel trails and stuff going through these national parks um, can affect the, the plant life and animal life and all that kind of stuff. And those things aren't, aren't uh, necessarily separated from the Bigfoot subject. Um, even when you get into believers like the NAWAC, their whole thing is conservancy. So I know I'm, I'm kind of leaving our, our subject there, but I do love the skeptical approach that Pyle had because he's not, making fun of the subject in any way he's just he's asking the questions i ask which is in a lot of ways it's just how it comes down to how is this possible like how is there an ape um or whatever living right outside towns and you know close to people that has managed to go undiscovered this long you've probably read the book more recently than i have but in my memory i don't even think he doesn't really get into 
even compiling reports or anything of that nature, does he? I mean, he, he recounts he recounts a couple stories because I know one of the stories early on in the book I had never heard of, and I can't even remember what it is now. But I remember reading it and thinking that's a really interesting sighting report. But yeah, for the most part, it it is not. It, it's definitely not like John Green. You're not reading a John Green book. I again, like I would hesitate to even call it a Bigfoot book. It's called Where Bigfoot Walks, but it's not really mm-hmm. a Bigfoot no. book. No, and but Pyle became just tremendously influential on this sort of the next wave of authors that sort of picked up where he left off. And I'm thinking of uh, writers like David Degling, um, who wrote Bigfoot Exposed, and uh, Joshua Blue Buse, Bigfoot, uh, The Life and Times of a Legend. Brian Regal's Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. I have not read that book, but I really it's on my list. Yes, yes. And it needs to be, I think. Anybody with a real interest in the topic needs to, I think, deal with these books uh, because they force you to think through certain things that it's very easy to sort of just sort of take as gospel truth. If you if you lean towards Bigfoot advocacy, you know, as a flesh and blood creature, um, there are certain things that you're asked to accept, and these books don't. <laughs> they don't just yeah. take certain things on faith, and I think it's it's healthy to be challenged in the way that these books do. Yeah. Now you brought up the only one of those books that I have read, but it was quite a while ago. Is the um, Life and Times of a Legend, mm-hmm. um, which has a fantastic cover, right? That's the one with the two uh, feet. Yes, it's like the yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, that book, I I enjoyed p- parts of it. I also felt like it got very dull at times. I think you're a fan, though. If I remember, you and I talked about this. I think we actually talked about it at the Bigfoot conference when we met. Um, but I read that book, and the thing that bothered me about it was. Um, there was some points throughout where I felt like he was almost, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, mocking. I guess mocking would be the right word. I felt like he was almost mocking the subject, which bothers me. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm a skeptic, but I don't, I wouldn't mock necessarily the possibility that these things are out there ever. Um, I'm in the NAWAC, so obviously I, I give it some credit. Um, the, another thing is how much, um, value he placed upon the idea and i think this is the book but again i'm going off memory i think he placed a lot of value on the idea that these uh bigfoot legends and bigfoot stories could all be rooted in the um kind of psychological idea that man is just hungry to be back in the wild and that holds some sort of strong argument against the existence of bigfoot that maybe man just psychologically has created Bigfoot because of our need to go, you know, return to our our uh, Adam roots. And I have always found it's funny because Pyle talks about that too. Mm-hmm. But I've always found that idea kind of silly. Like I get it, but I've also found it kind of silly. Yeah, yeah. No, but you put your finger on it. I mean, that's one of his central ideas. And really, when you look at sort of his contemporaries, they're saying essentially the same thing. Um, I like the book a lot, and the thing about these books is that they're written at a very high level. They're very readable. Um, they're very 
uh, well-spoken as far as that goes. And what uh, Blue Buz does is, as you said, you know, he positions Bigfoot as sort of this desire to get back to nature. The one thesis that he attaches to that that I really, I, I find it hard to accept really is that not only did they think of that as sort of a back to nature sort of psychological fulfillment, but also that it, it appealed especially to working class men who saw in Bigfoot a way to kind of strike back against oppressive systems. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that's pushing it just, I don't know if I'd say way too far, but I think it's stretching to fit a sort of a separate premise into a a desire uh, to talk about Bigfoot. And you're right, he is not charitable towards some of the major uh, figures of of the Bigfoot uh, research, mm-hmm. especially in the 50s and 60s. So, um, you know, having said all that, it is a compelling alternate history almost than the one that you're used to if you've only sort of dealt with these figures in a, a positive way. I'm sure there's people in who are deep into Bigfoot, who would get, you know, maybe 30 pages into this and throw it against the wall. Yeah, it's it's like this. If you've seen something unexplainable in the woods and you believe it's a Bigfoot, or you've seen a Bigfoot, you are convinced it's a Bigfoot, you don't really need to go down the road of reading the skeptical books. I, I really don't. I, I think you know if you've seen that, I'm not saying that I believe you've seen that. I'm saying if you've seen that, that's what you think you've seen, then you know. Um, but if, if you're like me and I'm someone who's just an observer, I came to the subject because I find the whole thing very fascinating, but I've never seen anything. It's important for us to, to maintain this balance, which is to read the skeptical stuff. Go ahead, like take in the skeptical literature or whatever. Um, just like we do reading the works of John Green and, and Renee Hinden and all, you know, studying Grover Krantz and all that stuff. Because otherwise what happens is you're, you're going to let yourself fall toward one side or the other with no real reason. Like you're not going to have anything to balance out that side of the argument, the pro Bigfoot side of the argument, just like the skeptics uh, don't necessarily have any grounds to stand on when they automatically dismiss uh, the existence of Bigfoot either. There should be a balance, is what I'm saying. Exactly. And, and in the scenario that you just described, if you've seen what you believe to be a Bigfoot and you are convinced, then really reading any skeptical literature shouldn't affect you because you know what you've seen. You know, And, and you, it, you almost then at that point have a responsibility to know what skeptics are saying so that you can respond you know, in an intelligent way beyond just, I saw what I saw when I saw it. Right, but this is, see, this is how I, if I had seen a Bigfoot, the last thing I'm going to want to hear is some yokel who's never seen a Bigfoot talking about how there is no Bigfoot. Right. Because, like, just an emotional, my gut Mm -hmm. emotional response to having seen a Bigfoot and then reading a book like, even Piles, is going to be, you're you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. What do you know? Which is exactly the response we get from a lot of Bigfooters to skeptics. Yeah. And the um, I think some of these guys are writing from such a remove from the situation that they would be fine with that, you know, with a sort of emotional reaction. They would probably analyze that in a way that would just shore up <laughs> their way of thinking. 
you know, right. because there is such a emotional involvement and investment in something that you you want it to be there. And see, that's the thing. Like with David Degling's book, uh, who's an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Florida, his book is Bigfoot Exposed. And one of his major things that he gets into is that the forensic evidence for Bigfoot is very weak. Um, he goes so far as to say, and this is where I, where I really sort of um, backed Part away ways. from. Yeah, he he goes so far as to say that all footprint evidence is false, is mm. the result of pranksters and hoaxers, and I just thought that was a tremendous. <laughs> leap to make uh but See, i mean he makes to, it to, and it, it makes to, no to, apology that is more of a leap to make than someone saying bigfoot is real to me yeah like to to claim that every foot footprint track is a fake um is stupidity there's now you could say that there's a mix of misidentification misidentification and hoax tracks um but to say everyone's mm-hmm. a fake or, I mean, it's just, or, or to just outright dismiss tracks in general, every track in general is crazy to me. I mean, there's track, trackways that go, you know, thousands of tracks. I mean, that, that defy explanation to me, mm-hmm. especially some of those early ones that, you know, were found um, that people now credit to Ray Wallace uh, when you get into like things like the, the, how deep they were pressed into the soil and stuff. I just, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I, you know what? You mentioned Ray Wallace. These books follow a similar pattern, really. Uh, Ray Wallace is always brought up. And interestingly, his, Ray Wallace's perspective is really never questioned. Um, Wallace is received most of the time as uh, without a real you know, a critical look at him and his background. It's you know his confession that I, you know, I am Bigfoot and and all that is received really un, in an unquestioned manner. And it's received in the same way we we receive Bob Gimlin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like yeah. it is, and I'm not trying to be offensive or controversial, but that is the way skeptics receive things like Ray Wallace. Yeah, right, and that's frustrating because it gives them their pat. It's a pat explanation for everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know where that ends up, and it's, it's it's very much the same conclusion in these cases. Is there is no explanation for eyewitness accounts? They can't offer one. I mean, they they'll say, you know, all Bigfoot tracks are and cast prints are fakes. Um, any photographic evidence is fake. But the one thing that they they really can't successfully comment on is eyewitness accounts. And because, you know, in the case of Dagling, I mean, what he ends up saying is that I can't account for what they're seeing. They think they're seeing something. Um, The mystery is, this is pretty much cribbed from his last sentence, but he says the the mystery is not in the forest, it's in humanity. Mm. So still, to me, that that doesn't satisfy me as an explanation for eyewitness accounts, because what it seems to be saying is that um, people are either misidentifying something that's fairly clear, or it's somehow being created in their psyche and projected into a natural yes. environment, 
Yeah, and how does that, that work? I mean, where else does that happen in life? I don't. Well, and uh, and I know right now we're actually starting to come across as as believers, but explain how that that explanation fits into the historical record then, because we have this historical record of sighting reports that go back centuries um, throughout the throughout the United States. So. You're telling me that Christopher Columbus times there were there's there's accounts of reports back then. There's accounts of reports in native native culture. Um, all of this is man. Why on earth would Native Americans who were living like um, like Adam? Why are they suddenly trying to create wild men when that's how they were living at the time? It wasn't like they were in a culture. You know, there wasn't. That explanation's bullcrap. That's that's what drives me crazy yeah. about that pile of explanation. Yeah, that's a that's a excellent question, and really, the you hit it right on the head. What would the psychological need be for getting back to nature if you're already in nature? Yes. I, I don't. And you know, it's very easily resolved in a book like that by saying, "Well, it's a mystery." Okay, well, you just spent 250, 300 pages saying why this particular mystery isn't what you think it is, only to arrive at the conclusion that it's inexplicable. (laughs) How many of these books do you think are actually guys flat out admitting, I don't don't know, maybe it is, like, I want to see a book, because I can't think of any off the top of my head. Pile comes pretty close, but I want to see someone who says, I don't know. I don't know if it's real. I don't know if it's false. Here's the pros and here are the cons. And let's just examine it because that's that's how I feel we we approach Bigfoot. At least that's that's how I approach it and yeah. I know that's how you approach mm-hmm. it. So when we come at the subject, we're both we're both very similar in the facts in the fact that we see the pros, we see the cons and we're discussing them. I don't have answers because I haven't seen anything. Um, and even if I saw a Bigfoot tonight, I would have a, a billion questions about how are they out there? How are they getting around? You know, explain this, explain that. Um, I just want to see something that's much more what I consider skeptical, which is to to approach it open-mindedly, both sides of it. I don't think open-mindedness and skeptic, skepticism are at odds. I, I think actually they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. Now, what some of these books will do is and I like this, is that they'll, uh, and I think especially this is the case in um, Degling's book. You know, he says, no matter what you think happened, when somebody has a Bigfoot encounter, for the most part, they walk away from that knowing at a deep level that something meaningful has happened, something important has happened, and in many cases it changes the course of their life in one way or another. And uh, now, you know, I just got done saying before, he doesn't really have anything to offer in terms of what that meaningful experience was, but I do like the fact that, in, at least in his case, he does honor that, that the, the eyewitness um, encountered something important, and he, mm-hmm. we, he ends up locating that in sort of a a living mythology that exists psychologically in, in human beings. But, you know, I, I'm with you. I think that the the idea of saying, you know, here's here's what we know, here's what we don't know, 
and just being honest about the fact that we don't coming to yeah. a conclusion is uh somewhat reckless actually i mean why do we have to why do we have to claim we're a believer or a non-believer that's what bothers me without having seen anything ourselves i i don't know i may i'm an i'm an un, i don't know i'm a non-knower mm-hmm. that's what i am um so it's it's frustrating to me because either either side really can be incredibly frustrating. Skeptics dismiss things outright a lot of the times, and believers accept everything and then cast aside those that are skeptical or or question certain things. Um, I don't think either side is is right all the time or right even even part of the time. It drives me crazy. Um, but yeah, it's the problem. The problem I have with some of these books is they they. They start out with their hypothesis. They already they already have decided what the end game is here. What the what the f- finale of the book is? It's this is a skeptical Bigfoot book. It's it's a it's a Bigfoot doesn't exist book. Well, you're not. I mean, it's not going to be in a in a uh, an approach to the subject I'm going to want to read because it's already coming at it. The author's already coming at it with this is. You know, this is me setting out to prove Bigfoot doesn't exist. That's the great thing about Pyle's book in a lot of ways. I mean, I, th- I feel like in a lot of ways, Pyle ends up almost saying maybe there is, maybe there isn't. He kind of comes to it the way I, I like, which is it's skeptical. And he probably is more skeptical than I'm saying right now or making it sound. But um, he goes on a journey of discovery for himself. And I, I enjoyed that. Like, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. Yeah. That's why it bothers me. This all this Minerva monster stuff. Like you get the full breadth of human reaction to Bigfoot. You know, like I get the believers that are like, "Oh, awesome! Let me tell you about my Bigfoot sighting." And you get the the skeptics or non-believers or whatever you want to call them who are like, "Really, Bigfoot? Mm-hmm. You, you believe in that crap?" Like, yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. You know, um, I called into a show on some pop station here and you know the 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 disc jockey his entire uh basis for not believing the minerva monster story is that well the kate they must just be crazy there's no they're just crazy i mean that's the typical response right. to bigfoot eyewitnesses if you're adamant in your non-belief it's that everyone's crazy mm-hmm. which must be a scary way to live yeah yeah, or a convenient way, you know. It makes it mm-hmm. a lot easier. Right. And I, I think that is, you know, Pyle is, comes out saying the the, the possibility. I, I think he would allow that it's possible that this exists and that it's important for people to believe that it's possible. I've seen interviews with him where he almost came across as a believer, mm-hmm. but... To, to, to be fair, like I've seen interviews with Esteban Sarmiento where he comes across as a believer. And in talking to him at Saltfork this year, he's actually, to me, he came across as a complete skeptic. And he's and, and it's funny because a lot of his ideas for what could be behind Bigfoot um, are similar to what we're talking about with this kind of wild man um, myth born in our psyche kind of mm-hmm. thing. But um, wrap us up here, Mark. It's interesting to me that in you know, these these skeptical books, they do seem to follow a certain pattern, and the same figures sort of rise to the surface in the various writings. 
And one of them who sort of stands as an emblem to all this is Grover Krantz for somewhat obvious reasons. You know, here was somebody inside of the scientific institution who took it up, you know, took all the slings and arrows that went along with even daring to consider uh, the Bigfoot hypothesis. In the process, though, he really shot himself in the foot when he made statements like um, that he could not be fooled by track evidence. Um, That's just not a scientific thing to say. Um, It made him very easy to target from that point on, and what the account that is repeated in some of these books is uh, one in which a fake track was sent to Krantz, and he proceeded to claim that it was legitimate, and that some of his so-called secret criteria for determining the validity of those uh, had been met, when in fact it was created in 20 minutes by somebody, not out of spite, but just out of curiosity to see what Krantz's conclusion would be. Mm-hmm. So to me, uh, Krantz is just one sort of image for all this, uh, this, this strong desire to prove the existence of something that just seems to be out of our reach you know, at every moment. And um, what we still have to go on, I think what will just continue uh, to exist uh, beyond anything else are the stories that are told of somebody seeing something and it looked like this giant, hairy ape man. Uh, What it is, we don't know. And it's uh, a mystery that is, it just seems to haunt human beings right down to the present day. Right. Right. We're not live. <laughs> Join the conversation at facebook.com slash sasswhat. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag sasswhat, or you can find me on Twitter at Seth Breedslove. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to sasswhatmail at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes.